Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Awesome. So this is episode 28, if I recall. That, yes, tw- that 28. That's what my sheet says. <laughs> you have to look at the sheet. So yeah, we uh, we don't have a guest this week. Nope. Um, so we've been basically hard at work at Macrofab uh, working on some projects. Yeah, getting back to getting the projects moving again. Yeah, finally. Yeah. So uh, got some got some cool breakthroughs this week. Uh, the SSPS, I think we talked about having the uh, analog board done a few weeks ago. I finally got it all hooked up. You got a whole uh, prototype test bed running. So got the board, got a whole cap stack, got some beefy rectifiers, and uh, the big power transformer running. Yeah, you made a mess of our bench. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's what it takes, man. But but yeah, so got the got the whole rig, so it's it kind of... Not kind of, it simulates a full single-channel SSPS uh, right now. So, big power transformer. It's got two 30-volt taps uh, at 13 amps each. Mm -hmm. I rectify that up to 43-ish volts. Uh, And then on my analog board, I got two high-voltage regulators that uh, hammer that down to 35 volts, which is the maximum for the uh, output op-amp. And then I got a, a handful of low voltage supplies for, you know, powering op amps and and things like that. And then uh, all the digital controls and got that uh, up and running this week. And I was actually outputting some stuff. Yeah, and you had uh, a prop dev stick basically simulating the front panel, sending it data. Right, right. So literally, the the output is just controlled by a single I squared C line. We have uh, two. Uh, they're max. Chips. I can't remember the the actual number. We'll have to post that. But they, uh, it's two um, those D are the to A's, right? Yeah, sixteen bit D to A's. One of them, when you write a number zero to sixty five five three five, uh, that controls zero to up to thirty five volts. So you got sixteen bits for the positive, and then you can write to the other DAC, and you get zero to negative thirty five. So it's, I think we argued about this a while back. It's thirty two bits across the whole seventy volt line. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it does work that way. Right. Yep. So I, I wrote up a quick little um, prop spin code to uh, have it just output a, a ramp wave. Basically, it just writes... Uh, it doesn't write every value on uh, through the 16-bit. It writes every thousandth value. Uh, and I was able to get a full 30... It was 33 volts because there's some calibration, but a full 33-volt peak-to-peak ramp wave yeah, going Yeah, you out. had a nice sawtooth. Yep. Yeah, sawtooth, and I think it was 10 hertz. 10 hertz. Yeah, I, it, 10 I hertz. wasn't trying to time it. It's just however the processor hammered it out. Yeah, and uh, you had, did you have a load on it? No, no. Uh, I haven't done any load testing yet because we don't have heat sinks, water block, or yeah, any heat sinking yeah. whatsoever. We should probably just bolt a big piece of aluminum to it for, the, for, for, for now. With insulators. Yep. Yeah. So the uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised after some mishaps with putting caps on backwards. Yeah, that was scary. Yeah. <laughs> so we you know these ginormous capacitors, um, and so this is the first time Stephen was turning it on. Um, so he had the 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 rectifiers basically with a hacked up cord that went into the wall. A suicide cable. Suicide cable. He plugged it in, and it immediately all the lights in our engineering area dimmed, and there was a <laughs> from the caps, and he unplugged it, and he had them wired up backwards. And it wasn't, you know, like, duh, Steven, why'd you do that? Well, yeah. these caps are actually positively marked on the stripe. 
but they have a big solid stripe down the positive side of the cap. Yep. Now, yeah, it, does, it sort it does, of was a duh thing because surrounding that positive stripe is a whole bunch of plus signs. Plus signs, yes. <laughs> but I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's got a big stripe on it. That's got to be negative. <laughs> Chalk that up to you did it before lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Steven's not allowed to play with high voltage af- uh, before lunch now. <laughs> <laughs> but flip the caps. And the, the funny thing was, or the, the cool thing, I should say, is first time I fired up the board, everything did everything what worked. it was supposed to do. And I'm actually surprised you didn't blow up those caps either. <laughs> they look beefy. And, yeah. and I did not have it plugged in very long. I heard some noises. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I pulled out the plug. Well, and then the real thing is we, we put the meter on on the cap uh, uh, on the caps. Yeah. And we were actually we were measuring the voltage. And the voltage didn't even get up to, like, 10 volts. Well, it went 10 and it started to drop. Yep. And I was like, oh, this is bad. This is not good. Yeah. But we flipped them around, plugged it back in, and got up to, what was it? 40. 40 something. Yeah, yeah 43, 43 volts. And they stayed charged for a long time, even with your bleeder yeah. resistors. We have eight caps, and I have a bleeder resistor on every cap. The value of the bleeder resistor is 22K. Um, so 22 divided by four, whatever that ends up being. I, I don't, I'm an engineer. I can't do math in my head. But uh, but yeah, that that across uh, 0.04 farads takes a long time to discharge. Yep. And I, I didn't want to put lower yet because I we only have quarter watt resistors. Yeah. <laughs> I would just burn them just from discharging the caps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we need to get a um, a discharge uh, screwdriver that you use for working on on uh, TVs. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's got like a I think a one meg resistor. Mm-hmm. And you just touch it to stuff, and it discharges through. I actually have something similar to that for my um, my amp work. It's it's actually a really big cardboard tube with a with a probe at the end of it, and it's got a 220k wire round inside of it. Hmm. And uh, the other side is like a really beefy alligator clip, and you just hook that to chassis and touch whatever you need. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just bring that in. That'll work. But the only thing that sucks about that is 220k. It would still take. Ages to discharge. So we need something like 1K. Or less. Or less. And then a beef enough, you know, um, a beef enough resistor to handle that heat dump. Yeah. When we we get to finalizing everything, we'll probably want to get like 5 watt resistors and put them across the caps. Uh, And, and, you know, something reasonable like 500 ohms. Oh, no, no. What we we can do is... um, Actually, in the design, we should put a relay that you can enable to discharge the caps. Oh, that's a good idea. That way it's already built in, so when you need to open it up, you you type in, hey, I'm going to be taking this apart. Yeah. And then you punch in, you know, the command for discharging the caps. It, the relay turns off the, the input supply yeah. uh, to the caps, and then it turns on this relay that dumps everything through a big resistor. Yeah. Bam, done. Dig it. So This is not simple at all. <laughs> no. I will, and, and I came across one issue that we're going to have to address. Okay. Uh, and it comes with turning off the power supply. So on my board, I have two 35-volt plus or minus regulators, but then I have a plus minus 15, I have a 5-volt and a 3-volt, 3.3-volt for mm-hmm. all the digital stuff. Well, the 3.3-volt, all those low-voltage stuff are actually on a separate tap on the transi- uh, transformer. Yep. 
when you unplug it from the wall, the high voltage regulators still have a, a whole hell of a lot of charge on them, but the low voltage stuff drops out real fast. What mm. ends up happening is you get a giant spike to the input of the op amps and the output of the op amp, even if you had it driven to ground, it still shoots up like 20 volts. That's and not good. Yeah, that would that would kill whatever you have attached to the load. So we need to think of a couple ways to fix that. And it could be something as simple as the output just goes through a relay. And when you click it off, when you kill power, it opens that relay. Yeah, make it that that relay is powered by the low power side. Right, right. Yeah. So it, it kills that. There's there's some other stuff we could do with pulling the ground really no, hard. No, we were, we were already going to have the outputs um, connected to a relay. So we'll just use that relay. Yeah, it will just we'll just have to make sure they're timed right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um and it might be where we beef up the capacitance on the on the low voltage side too, so that it lives a little longer. If like let's say you like the power went out to the shop. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have to, you know, pay attention to that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could we could certainly do that. Um we could also technically do like a soft power. Uh, oh yeah, the the front panel is going to be soft powered. Okay, well then in, in that case we can we can have it control all that with intelligence. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that might be the. Best and what we can do it. is actually put a battery backup on the front panel. Yeah. So it and always, so that if it loses power, it can detect that and actually properly shut stuff down. And we can put like a big eighteen six fifty cell on it that it can last hours. Because why not? Why not? We have the space for it yeah 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 i like it let's yeah. do it cool idea okay so um fx dev board update on that the enclosure finally came in and it looks awesome we've been waiting weeks for this enclosure yeah weeks. and i was kind of sweating bullets because i had to pick a color for it and we wanted to use macrofab red but when it comes down to picking a powder, a powder coat color, color, color yeah like there's just gazillions of colors to pick from and so i was literally sitting there with uh, my computer screen when i was defining it and just trying to find the best one and i think i landed it i think it i think yeah, it, it looks it, really good it's it's nice uh and the board fits really great it's strong as hell and uh i'm digging it yeah it looks awesome yeah i think the only big problem is the uh it actually fits a little too well <laughs> yeah 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 it's yeah. a little too tight but that's okay that's that's this you know, loosening up the tolerance a bit. Yeah, because uh, the powder coating when they when they uh, fired it, it actually pulled the the um, the wings in because it was this was sheet metal. I yeah. think it was like nineteen gauge or something like that, and and it kind of shrunk the dimensions just just enough to make it fit really nice. Yep. Uh, and really nice meaning it needs some more room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we need to get the magnets and the rest of the hardware. And then uh, you have the next revision of the FX dev board, which is the final one. Yep. That has everything lined up perfectly. And the footprints are are right for the breadboards this time. Have we tested that yet? No. Okay, cause, so cause it hasn't we'll know broken tomorrow out morning if it is. Yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm confident this time. Confident. You heard it here first. You'll <laughs> well, check Mike, out. We, tr you'll check out Twitter tomorrow morning if if there's like curse words on on, <laughs> on Steven's Twitter account <laughs> because of crappy morning. data sheets. Oh, that data sheet's terrible. Yeah. So that's moving along. I'm really I'm happy with the enclosure. Yeah. So I've been doing just basically bookkeeping this entire week <laughs> uh, and last week, um, updating Eagle footprints. 
Um, we made some changes to our what our footprints look like and how the the symbols are, and so I've been updating all that stuff, updating all the documentation. We are updating um, dip trace next week. Yep, we should be getting our KeyCAD footprint soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Dustin Holiday, he's been on the podcast twice already. Mm-hmm. Um, he's working on that, and that should be ready by next week. So hopefully next week we can push out. You know the updated dip trace, and then actually have KiCad libraries. So and these are, cool. these are going to be all the libraries. They're also going to be DRC and CAM rules. Yep. And so you'll be able to download um, basically templates for dip trace, and then files for KiCad, and make sure that you when you upload your boards to Macrofab, you actually can build them. Right, right, and they're kind of drag and drop. Where if you use the templates or the files or whatnot, you know it'll fly through Macrofab well. Exactly. So, you know, that's all that bookkeeping. That's been basically the bane of my existence the past two weeks, um, trying to keep tabs on all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, Josh's ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> he said sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, ne- tomorrow, so Friday, we'll be releasing pin headers as house parts Woo-hoo! for Crab. Woohoo, yeah. We've, we've kind of been talking about that for a long while. Long time, but we finally worked out how it's going to work. Yep. How it's going to um, work on mainly in the back end on operations side. Like, how are they going to handle all these pin headers? Right, right. So, how do you how do you manage? Because uh, it's, it's, what is it, two all the way up to 40 pin? One up to 40. Uh, we, we offer a one pin? Yes, one pin. Awesome. So one to 40. How do you handle inventory? <laughs> That's Yeah, inventory for that. And so we got we got it all worked out. Yeah. Um, so that, that should be going live tomorrow. Awesome. I'm um, hopefully the, about probably about two o'clock, three o'clock PM. Um, it'll be live on the house part page and we'll make a Twitter probably post about it. And yeah, I probably should make a blog post about, about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll, oh, we'll, we'll hit social media. Speaking of that, um, you're going to have an update for the SSPS on the blog tomorrow, right? That's right. Yeah. So I wrote up a, uh, so we've already had two, design blog post for the SSPS, and I finished up the third. Uh, it should go live tomorrow. Yep. Uh, and it kind of covers what we talked about earlier, all the all the testing and a bunch of images of my hacked-up prototype job. Yeah. And you can see how dangerous it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a really cool article. It's got a lot of good information on there. Awesome. About testing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we'll have two articles or two blog posts out next uh, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, three including this podcast. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be a big day. Probably make Abel, who's our marketing person, like insanely crazy. Oh, he's going to pull his hair out. Yeah. He's like, why are you doing three in one day? I'm like, because we need to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Um, Oh, then earlier this week, I had a blog article come out about how to do attributes in Eagle. Mm -hmm. Um, So go check that out. It's, you know, most... Eagle veterans would only know how this stuff works, but, you know, some people don't know. Yeah. And uh, the cool thing is, uh, with the attributes, is if you put MPN and populate into your Eagle part attributes, we actually pull that in at Macrofab. And so your manufacturer part number can get pulled in, or the populate field will get pulled in. Populate can be a zero for non-populate or a one for populate. So if you have, like, a part that you... You want in your schematic, but you don't want it to be placed on your board. You put a zero for that field. Right. 
and the manufacturer part number is really good for basically it's the to make the readability of your schematic better. Yeah. Because let's say you're using a specific cap because it has a uh, an ESR rating, uh, you know, and a uh, uh, series resistance that you act you, you need to have. So, yeah. like, let's say it's for a switcher, okay. a power switcher. Um, when you look at your schematic, you don't want to look at a part number for the value field, right? Because you have no idea what that most time what that part number actually means unless you've memorized everything yeah memorized every single part so usually you put like 10 microfarad mm-hmm. right well put that as your value field and then if you in the attribute field for okay. eagle yeah. you can put that actual part number there right and when you upload it to macrofab it'll pull that npn field out and bam automatically grab that that part number put it in populate it up good go Neat. Neat. <laughs> Actually, I, I like I like the whole populate thing. Uh, something I've done in the past, and a lot, of, a lot of people do this, it's really convenient, is to just populate a whole bunch of, like, 0805 zero-ohm resistors. Uh, put them all over your board when you're prototyping, but make them non-pop such that if you need it, you can just plug something in there or exactly. jump across it, and that makes that makes life a lot easier. And and on Macrofab, we, we have the ability on the user interface to select a part as non-pop, but now you can do that in your EDA tool. Yes. Which is even more convenient. Yes, it is. And so we'll be working on the depth trace uh, libraries that come out next week, and the KiCad stuff will have these kind of attributes. Yeah. Now, they won't be automatically pulled in yet, um, into Macrofab yet, until we get that backend stuff working. Right. But it's but a good with, step. But with both those others, we can do that. Yes. We just have to kind of define how we do it. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a bit easier with Eagle. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, on episode 26, which was two episodes ago, mm-hmm. um, I talked about having like a hacked together USB Type-C yep. working. Well, I finally actually got my board built, and it works. So I have a Type-C connector that actually uses... Um, the standard manufacturing practices, so just the standard DRC rules for Macrofab. Um, it talks over an FT230X FTDI, USB 2.0, USB bridge chip, um, and then to a parallax propeller, and it all works. And, and it worked on the first go round, right? Worked on the first go. No zero rework. That's, that's awesome. No green wires. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it, that's rare. You know, I'm not bad, but yes, it's it's pretty rare. Yeah, for a board that complicated for a, for a first time go round, that's rare. Yeah. yeah, so it works. I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with it. Um, awesome. And that's like uh, she. Uh, so I'm gonna have a blog post in the future. It's gonna be a couple months down the road about Type C and all that other good stuff. Yeah, you're writing a lot about that, aren't you? Yeah, I, it's almost like an ebook we're gonna be putting out mm-hmm. for that for Type C. Awesome. Basically, like, why why is it important for makers and, and engineers to start using this connector, even if they don't need USB 3.0? Because the great thing about it is you can use 2.0 on it. So it's backwards right. compatible. Because it has D plus, D minus lines. Yep. Yeah. You should uh, make it, like, the tome of type C or something. You know, well, like like you know, uh, like old Dungeons & Dragons books, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, player's yeah. guide to type C. I like that. <laughs> yeah. The engineer's guide. To type C. Chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We can make an ebook. 
<laughs> not not an ebook, uh, a audiobook. Oh god, that would be terrible. <laughs> but but if Morgan Freeman did it, I would totally oh, yeah. listen Morgan to Freeman. the whole thing. Well, his voice, you can just listen to anything he says. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that's up for all the projects we've been working on. Yeah. We kind of rambled a bit, but you know, yeah. that's certainly what we do. RFO? RFO. So there's some research into a new type of battery. And it's a dissolving battery, which mm-hmm. um, they say transient electronics, which I guess is code word for bad, uh, electronics that only get used once or they are short term, like a transient event. Sure. I guess. That's the only... It, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it like dissolves like... Um, with water. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it fizzes. <laughs> uh, so it's a lithium-ion battery that mm. provides 2.5 volts, and it can. this is what the article says. Yeah. It can power a, bat- a laptop for 15 minutes, this 2.5-volt battery. So well, this 2.5-volt dissolving battery can power a laptop for 15 minutes. That's what the article That's says. That's what they claim. And the size of this battery is 5 millimeters by 6 millimeters by 1 millimeter. So I did some quick, dirty math. So this math might be wrong. <laughs> you have to warn everyone. Yeah. Because we've been wrong in the yeah, past. Yeah, we've been wrong in the past. and we called out on it. Um, so first I went, like, I typed into Google, typical laptop batteries size. Yeah. And usually it's 60 watt hour is a typical size. Okay, so just take an so, average number. So it took 60 divided by 4, you get 15 watt hours. Right. 15 minutes is a quarter of an hour. Right. And so our battery is uh, 30 millimeters cubed or 0.03 centimeters cubed, which gives us 500 watt hours per centimeter cubed, which is enormous energy density. I don't know what energy density that comes close to, but I'm like, okay, let me do some math on a typical battery, like an 18650 lithium ion battery. Yeah. That's got a watt hour rating of 0.64 watt hours per centimeter cubed. Three orders of magnitude, no, four orders of magnitude less. <laughs> so, so they're claiming the world with this battery. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the article probably has something messed up with with their size or the fact that that laptop is, you know. Well, so maybe the, instead of saying fifteen minutes, it was supposed to be fifteen milliseconds. Milliseconds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's also kind of funky because. There's not a laptop that runs on 2.5 volts. No. So they, they, they were clearly talking about power. Yeah. But so it's probably multiples of these can power for 15 minutes. It's kind of silly when, it, especially since the article was on a uh, like electronic engineering website. Let me see which one it was on. It was on Electronics Weekly. So it's like, where is all the, it's clearly like a copy paste job. Basically oh, from some yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. It's an aggregate. Yeah, it, it was definitely from some other, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, press release, you know, press kit stuff. Yeah, right. And the person who wrote this article wasn't even paying attention or even did the simple math. Well, and, and those kind of numbers hit home for people who are not inclined to actually uh, understand what the numbers are. They look at it like, oh, my gosh, I can put this liquid all over my my laptop and it runs for 15 minutes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, no, that sounds like a, I'm calling BS on this. I'm calling BS on those stats. Um, but, okay, so here's the one thing where it might be different. If you don't think about it in terms of watt hours, but think of it in terms of total joules 
that it has. If you compare those two numbers, the amount of joules that are in uh, an 18, uh, what is it, 18650, compared to this thing, they might have comparable joules, but this dissolving battery can't provide it quickly enough. That could be an option. Yeah. But that's a really far stretch, if you ask me. Yeah, I I would agree. Yeah. Um, And so apparently, so what makes this battery special is it dissolves. So it's for... You know, one-time use devices. Yeah. Because um, apparently it's a, it's got a polyvinyl alcohol-based, like, enclosure. Okay. And when it gets attached with, when, when water hits it, it kind of just dissolves. And this is what they say is that um, the polymer casing swells and the electrodes are broken apart, causing it to dissolve, except for some nanoparticles, which they don't mention ever again. So what happens to the nanoparticles? <laughs> So, okay, wait, 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 wait. So you got this thing that they, like, I, I'm assuming it, it's kind of, uh, like, glow sticky, where two two materials come together and a reaction happens? Yep. Okay, great. How do you extract the energy from it? Well, it's got, it's got, um, the anion cathodes on the outside. Okay, but you, but you're gonna have, you're gonna have reactions going throughout the whole thing, so you're clearly not gathering all the energy. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's like a typical battery, but the materials that's made out of break down in contact with water. Weird. Except, except for nanoparticles, which it doesn't say what the nanoparticles are. It could be cancer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just leftover crap. It's just, it's, the battery is dissolved into cancer, <laughs> which is what would happen if you were in California. Right, right. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, how humid it is here in Houston these batteries would probably dissolve if you just had them sitting on your table. <laughs> oh, yeah, guaranteed. You know it would happen. Yeah. Because, I mean, we got, we've got we got gallons of water just floating around us right now. Yep. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's a... BS. BS. Um, wait till so we see some practical applications. Yeah. Um, and then this one's not really a news article, but a cool project I saw. It was a... Uh, we, we like talking about Pokemon, especially Pokemon Go on this show, mm-hmm. and IoT devices. And this combines both. <laughs> it's a uh, Pokeball that wiggles when Pokemon are near for, for the uh, Pokemon Go app. Okay. Yeah, so this guy, the hardware side wait, is... Wait, wait, uh, do you have like a belt like in the show where you have a couple of these on your belt and your belt just starts to wiggle? <laughs> That'd be awesome, but no. <laughs> this video doesn't show that. He shows the Pokeball just sitting there on his table wiggling okay um hardware wise it's pretty simple it's a 3d printed pokeball it's got a servo with a big weight um and so when the servo moves it makes it you know wiggle around yeah and then uh and then it uses a uh uh photon which is by particle iot the mm-hmm. the photons have a really popular iot platform and server and a bunch of other stuff yep and then apparently pokemon go has an api do they really Yes, they do. Huh. And so he uses that API to basically um, figure out where it's at. Yeah. I think it uses Wi-Fi. Yeah, so I think it probably uses the Wi-Fi location and then um, and then you know looks up, hey, is there any Pokemon near me? And then it says yes, then it wiggles. Well, that's nifty. Yeah, it's a pretty cool project. I actually, okay, so I've got a complaint about Pokemon Go. Okay. I, I think I told you about this the other week, but it, it's worth telling everyone. Pokemon Go has messed up my YouTube uh, watching schedule. 
Oh yeah. Uh, so so okay, g- get this. When I, when I'm driving into work, I, I like to just listen things on my phone or or even at home, you know, watching watching videos. And and I pretty regularly watch the EEV blog. Uh, it's that's just, probably a pretty popular thing with people who watch, uh, listen to our show. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure our audience knows that. So for not for a short period of time, for years. I've been able to go to YouTube on my phone and type in three letters, E-E-V, and the very first search it pops up is E-E-V blog. Now when I type in E-E-V, it pulls up the Pokemon Eevee as number one. Oh, is that a Pokemon? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Pokemon. And not only the first search, but the first like four searches are all <laughs> Eevee. So now because of Pokemon Go, I have to type in E-E-V-B to get to the Eevee Oh, E-V poor blog. you. You have one more keystroke to do. You think um, YouTube's algorithm would know better? It should know me because my searches on EV blog and Pokemon vastly outweigh each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have searched for Pokemon. I think we need to come up with a Pokemon hardware project. I'm down. Yeah, we got to think of something. I guess we'll. And think- it has to be IoT. Yeah, it has to be IoT. Uh, it has to be IoT and it's got to be really stupid. Yep. Um, so we'll, we'll think of it. I can't think of anything right now. Can you? Um, actually, I mean, like, a lot of the cool projects are already being made. Like, GPS hacks, the cool Pokedex, little box thing. Yep. The uh, Pokeball that wiggles. Pokeball that wiggles. Um, we'll, we'll have to come up with something. I wonder, I guess I'd look into API more, but it'd be really cool if you could play it with the Pokeball that wiggles. Yeah. And so... It like like make it so it vibrates when Pokemon are near, and then you throw it so it detects you. You threw it, yeah, and then it tries to capture it, and then it can wiggle. There's actually no uh, a guy already created that. It was on Hackaday, oh, yeah? uh, like two weeks ago. Yeah, he he had um, gosh, I can't remember how he did it, but he had an actual Pokeball that he throws, and and his phone sensed him throwing that, and it, and it, and it completed the action also. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So actually, along that lines, what could be cool is if you had like a like a capsule or a pod or something, and you could throw it anywhere, and it would pop up a Pokestop, or you could like plant a gym somewhere. Now, you'd have to somehow put that into their system, but that would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I guess we'll look into it some more. Yeah. And uh, that's going to wrap up the uh, RFO section, right? Yeah. Cool. And uh, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, guys. Take it easy.